Where's your stanchion? Where's my stanchion? I don't have a stanchion. Welcome to So Psychological, the podcast where two friends investigate the world of psych. All the analysis, none of the professionalism. Hello, everybody. Welcome to So Psychological, the podcast where we overanalyze characters that we love almost as much as any real people, the characters of psych. I'm Lizzie Blake, and this is my co-host, the artist formerly known as Jenny from the Block. Uh, can my block be in Santa Barbara? <laughs> it is a beautiful day in that neighborhood. <laughs> uh, let's begin this episode with a quick summary, shall we? Let's. All right, so this episode begins with a flashback of Henry teaching Sean how to properly hold a stakeout. No drinking and no peeing. The true destroyers of any stakeout. Exactly. Back to the present, the police are wrapping up a bank robbery by bringing in Raylene, who is a widow of one of the robbers, David. The police want to let her know that her husband's co-conspirators have been released from prison because they fear that she may be in danger. In an effort to get on the case, Sean and Gus introduce themselves to Raylene and she hires them to find the money that is still missing from the bank robbery. While Juliet and Lassiter decide to stake out the released bank robber's hotel room, Sean decides to hold a seance in the psych office so that he can fish for information from Raylene and her friends and family. During this time, they learn the name of David's cousin, Roger Blaine, who becomes a person of interest to Sean. Hoping to find more information on Blaine, Sean returns to the police station where he meets our favorite desk clerk with the magic Magic touch touch and uses her to get into the records room where he finds Blaine's address. Lo and behold, it is the cemetery property where David is supposedly buried. When Sean and Gus arrive, they are surprised to find David, hmm, alive and well. (laughs) Sean approaches Lassiter and Juliet to team up and get the bank robbers arrested on parole violations, but Lassiter wants to find the money and close the case completely. Sean and Gus decide to check out the robbers' hotel room, only to get caught by the robbers. After Sean verifies his, um psychicness to the robbers they let sean and gus know raylene is the real mastermind of the heist the guys leave for the mausoleum where david's grave is located however raylene has found david and is demanding he give her the stolen money sean delays until his new parolee buddies join them and raylene threatens all of them in pursuit of the stolen money but just in time jules and lassiter arrive Uh, having followed the ex-cons that they were staking out, and Raylene is promptly arrested. With all this information, Sean now knows exactly where the money is buried, and he and Gus take off down a trail, but only after Sean has promised to find the money in under nine minutes and offers some chicken as a hearty snack. I like chicken tandoori. I do. Okay, so in episode three... We explored some of those playa type qualities that we see in Sean. Yes. But in this episode, we get to see a more personal reveal of Gus and the ladies. And the ladies. Yes, so we notice how he loosened up with the ladies at the bachelorette party, right? Mm-hmm. Well, here we have a one-on-one exchange 
between Gus and a seeming damsel in distress. And then the banter that follows mm-hmm. with Sean mm-hmm. reveals so much more about Gus. Oh, so much. Yeah, we definitely get the impression that Sean is interested in helping this lady for personal reasons. Like he wrote his number on the back of his business card. That's a play a move. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. (laughs) He seems to want to rescue her and protect her from, like, the whole world. Right. I mean, and so the majority of the banter that goes on between Sean and Gus is going to be centered around this idea that Gus will always go for the girl who is needy, needs help, needs protection, needs comfort, just needs a little bit of love. Some what? Right? Uh, Whatever it is that maybe makes Gus feel valuable. Like, so Sean confronts him saying that he must have Stockholm Syndrome. No, says Gus. Uh, Florence Nightingale disease. <laughs> I don't know that that's a real disease. But I think there is like a Florence Nightingale Syndrome. Yes, isn't there? there is, I think. But that definitely seems more accurate than Stockholm Syndrome. Because Gus doesn't correct him after that one. It is interesting. But yeah. I do think, like, for us as the audience... This makes us feel like Gus is a safe person. Like right. that we were in need of protection, in need of help, that Gus would would protect and help us. Right. So it's not just about like who he would want to be in a relationship. It really is this quality that he possesses, who he already is. Yeah. And I think it gives us a little bit a lot of it of insight into a little bit of this a little bit of that a lot of that a little bit of this and a whole lot of that into his friendship with sean sean is needy he constantly needs help constantly needs yeah. protection so all of these things that sean is saying about gus helping dangerous women sean is literally the friend version of that wow he totally is um, and he's kind of actually a selfish best friend in that, right? Because he does like want all of those Gus benefits, but he can't actually handle the competition with somebody else getting yeah. those benefits. So now here's the thing about Sean, though. It's not like there's only room for Sean in Gus's life, uh, the way it seems like Sean is viewing it. But it does seem like Sean has to be the only like needy or dangerous one you know like which is just how sean describes himself right yeah interesting and maybe a little dangerous so it's not like he has to be that only one person in gus's life but he does want to be that one person uh that gus focuses all that attention that specific type of attention onto so like you know if sean needs bailing out he has a permanent safety net friend, mm-hmm. and that's Gus. And yet, I think ultimately, even Sean, while wanting Gus to always be there for him, really wouldn't necessarily want Gus to feel like he needed to be that way for him, or be limited to that. I, yeah. I don't like. I don't think he wants to force Gus into feeling like, oh, I have to be there for Sean, or else. I think he really just wants Gus to want to be like to that. want to be yeah. there. Yeah. And so I think that's why Or we, that he sees that in Gus and maybe exploits it a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, because we do sometimes exploit our friends for the things that... That we need. And the things we enjoy about each other. Like, yeah. you know. Um, and sometimes for humor's sake, which we totally see Sean and Gus doing... Oh, absolutely. Quite often. 
But I also think that's why we see Sean's concern over Gus linking himself to these vulnerable women. Like, he really wants more for him. He doesn't really want to see him locked up into that role. Yeah, I wonder if Sean really does recognize that Gus is not only attracted to vulnerable women, but he is truly attracted to being a rescuer as well. Like, being a rescuer, having that be your role in a relationship, that would be just so exhausting. It would make for a very unhappy, unhealthy, long-term romantic relationship. And Gus here, it seems like he really does want a healthy, beneficial, long-term romantic relationship. But at this point, he's always attracted to the wrong wrong type of woman. Yeah, and I think that's a good point that you just made about if there being a difference between being attracted to a vulnerable person and actually being a protector. Mm-hmm. And also, like you said, Gus really would want to have a healthy long-term relationship. Yes. And I think what we talked about last time too is I think Sean would want that too. But ultimately, I don't think they really know what that would look like for each of them. Yeah. And so it's like, for example, if I go into a restaurant, like I know I'm hungry. I know I want to eat. But I'm I'm a visual person. Sorry, Susie. But I'm a visual person. <laughs> and, um, and sometimes like... I might even know what type of food I want to eat. But I go into the restaurant and I really, I'm looking at the menu, my eyes are glazing over. It's not until I look over at somebody else's table and I see that, I see the four dishes that are out and I see that one thing and I'm like, oh my goodness, that's what I want. I order it, I eat it. I'm like, that is exactly what I wanted. And I'm so ashamed that I'm comparing any person. Any romantic partner. Any person in a relationship (laughs) to a at dinner but, it, but, but, like, but it's true I, so i i apologize listeners i do not mean to compare this or trivialize it as if we are equivalent to a takeout meal but what i am saying is sometimes we don't know actually what we want we know we want something and we even can have a sense about it but we don't have a full understanding of even ourselves to know what it is that we really want except that we want it and we have an idea yeah, and that that's so true. Like when you talk to people who've been who've been married for a long time and they're like, "How did you know?" And and they're like, "Well, when when you know, you know." It's that it's that same kind of concept. Like when you've actually experienced what you're actually looking for, you're like, "Oh, this is what this is what I'm looking for." But up until that point, you're you're, you know, Right, and, and, I, and it's such an ethereal thing. It's so hard to, to describe. That's why people always are like, when you know, you know. Well, because relationships themselves are so hard to describe. And there's yeah, so many aspects of relationships that are not concrete. They are ethereal, you know, or uh, metaphysical to use a great term, you know, but just they're, they're, they have to do with thoughts and feelings and connections and chemistry and all different types of things. Sometimes they are hard to put in words. And I think that's interesting because without knowing fully what they want, that's, I think, why we see, you know, this kind of, like, Gus perceives himself to be a player. Yeah. He kind of likes this idea of, because I think he likes the idea of, you know, he knows he's valuable. He knows he wants to be loved. He knows he's he would really care for somebody. So he has that longing for a relationship. And so he, he really likes the idea of, hey, yeah, I let think, me go out there. I think both of them 
like the idea, the construct of being a player to almost essentially protect themselves from what they don't want. Like, Sean does not, he does not want his heart to be broken. He wants to protect that. And if he's a player, man, he can protect that really, really easily. Gus, on the other hand, he doesn't necessarily, he wants to be the rescuer. He doesn't necessarily want to be vulnerable. And if he's a player, he can protect that. Yeah. So, like, even last time, we talked about Sean being an anti-player of sorts. A little bit, yeah. In the way that you're talking about. And I think this is how we see Gus as well, because Gus considers himself to be a player, but in fact, he really would be hungry to commit and protect. Absolutely. Which in the relationships that we see, he jumps to pretty quickly. Oh, he, yeah, he jumps into relationship real fast. And I actually, I kind of wonder in in this instance as well, watching Sean and Gus, if they're not actually wanting this for themselves, but are kind of following culture and what they think a young, single, attractive man is going to do. And they think in our culture that young, single, attractive men are players. And so are, like, is that really something that they're both after, being a player? Is that how they're protecting themselves? Or is that some level of them trying to just assimilate themselves into what they think culture believes or is it some sort of amalgam of the three or is it even just simply what they've learned that culture tells them is the means to get the thing that they might want yeah and so here we have it we have these two anti-player players yeah and so we're just gonna have to watch and see how they figure themselves out but i love how sean is looking out for gus because Gus is always kind of looking out for Sean in terms of the ladies, too. Yeah. And so it really is a strong friendship because they do, in this particular area, have each other's best interests at heart. Yeah. Well, and I think we see that a lot with Sean and Gus. But Sean's always more subversive in how he tries to protect Gus. Yeah. But in and this we'll, instance, and we'll see that, we'll see he that a comes lot. Right out and says, what is the deal with you and these dangerous ladies? These dangerous women. Fun, fun, fun. Fact, fact, fact. Fun, fact. All right. Are you ready for our first fun fact today? Totally ready. All right. So since we were talking about those dangerous ladies that Gus seems to like so much, I did a little research. Yeah. On the list that... uh, Sean said that are the dangerous ladies. Right, in that banter that in they the had banter, where he yes. was very concerned, yeah. Joan Jett, Penny Marshall, Grace Jones, the woman who played Pinky Tuscadero, Lizzie Borden, and Kathy Bates are the, la- the ladies that are mentioned <laughs> in that banter. List. So here is what I have found. Uh, Joan Jett, she was a female rock star lead of The Runaways and then started Joan Jett, The Black Hearts. Um, and she was seen to be rebellious because culture hadn't really experienced a woman doing that particular type right. of rock and roll before. She was really revolutionary that way. And with the introduction of MTV, which actually used to play music videos. I think Once Upon a Time. Yeah. So so that, like, her, her, whole, um, her whole identity was as this almost rebellious rock star. 
Um, and some some great songs that she has that uh, we should be familiar with are Cherry Bomb, I Hate Myself for Loving You. She also did a cover, and it's their biggest hit, the cover of I Love Rock and Roll. I love. Yeah. Yeah. Put a little dime in the jukebox, baby. Exactly. Next would be Penny Marshall. Now, this lady, talk about a trailblazer. She is the first female to direct a movie that grossed over $100 million. Wow. The movie, big. You know, the Tom, Tom Hanks, Hanks movie yeah. where he grows up? Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah. Now, the very first movie that she directed was a smaller movie called Jumping Jack Flash. It is one of my all-time favorite movies. That was a breakout role for Whoopi Goldberg. She was so phenomenal in that. I just, oh, so funny. And she also did Awakenings, A, a League of Their Own, which, once again, it's, it's just legendary. another movie about female trailblazers and A League of Their Own, unbelievably quotable. And she's directed some of the greatest actors of our time. Tom Hanks and Drew Barrymore, Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. But here's the kicker. I think she's claimed her entire career was a, was a rebellion against her sourpuss stage mom. Oh my Quote, goodness. Quote, sourpuss stage mom. Because when I think of Penny Marshall, I think of Laverne and Shirley. Yes. And I'm not thinking of a dangerous woman. Yeah. But, but, but that's the, it was, it was that spirit of rebellion in her that, that created this amazing legacy that she's left in the movie industry. Okay. So incredible. Next on the list is Grace Jones. Her spirit of rebellion showed up uh, when she joined the counterculture movement of the 1960s. She lived in communes, worked as a go-go dancer, and experimented with drugs. She credits LSD for being an important part of her emotional growth. Quote, hmm. she was signed on the Wilhelmina Modeling Agency and her modeling career took off. She graced the covers of <laughs> L, graced. graced, Vogue, and Stern with her fame being credited to her bold features, androgyny, and her dark complexion. Yeah, gorgeous skin. Gorgeous. She transitioned modeling into a music career, which covered disco, new wave, and reggae styles, and then shifted that music career into acting. The next woman, Pinky Descadero, or the woman who played Pinky Descadero, rather, Roz Kelly. She was supposed to be a recurring and long-term love interest for the Fonz on Happy Days, but there were conflicts of some sort between Roz Kelly and the cast and crew, so she didn't return. But since then, she's been arrested twice for shooting a neighbor's windows and their car with a 12-gauge shotgun, and once... For striking a man with her cane. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I don't know how much of this equals rebellion and how much of this equals scary. Yeah, full-on dangerous. Yeah. So the next one, Lizzie Borden. I remember the Lizzie Borden poem from, like, Jump Rope on the playground as a child. Like, that's such an odd thing to skip rope to. So appropriate for children. I know. So she is a legendary person. Uh, with a poem that's about murdering her mom and stepdad. And the little the little poem or chant, jump rope chant, is Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave, gave her, her mother, mother 40, 40 wax. wax. Yeah. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. However, according to all of the documentation, her mother was struck either 18 or 19 times, and her father was struck 11. I 
also in my research found that there is a second verse. Andrew Borden is now dead. Lizzie hit him in the head. Up in heaven he will sing. On the gallows she will swing. Let's just realize this is a different Lizzie than me. Little bit. Little bit. Next on the list, Kathy Bates. Now, I have to say, I think this addition is because of her breakout role as Annie Wilkes in Misery. Right. So, that movie came out in 1990. So, I would have been like 14. And with Sean and Gus, we're all kind of the same age. So, they would have been, you know, 14, somewhere around in there as well. And so, this movie was like hugely impactful for me. She was the scary, scariest person I had ever seen in anything. Like, I still would cringe if somebody said, I'm your biggest fan. But Kathy Bates, as a woman and as an actress, like, she's so inspirational to me. I can't really see a rebellious spirit in her. She seems to be so much about truth and reality and authenticity and representing everyday people in our country. In particular, she's very interested in representing every woman. Or, you know... Maybe I have a screen crush on her. Either way, I'm a fan. <laughs> well, what about MBB? Uh, well, she is the mother of APK. Yeah. On Family Ties. So, I mean, I think we should just give her credit that's due. Well, and I, in fairness, she wasn't maybe the list of the needy or dangerous or rebellious women. She was loved because he rem- she reminded him of his babysitter. Yes. It may be the character with MBB that he is more that nurturing because mother of APK. Exactly. Sha la la la. Sha la la la. There are some new dynamics happening here between Juliet and Lassiter. Okay. Have you noticed? Yeah. So we're we, starting we, to see something. Yeah. We see we see some sass, maybe a little bickering, and even an eeny beeny power struggle (laughs) i mean it's obvious the lassie is used to wanting if not having the upper hand in his work partnerships yes so we saw this with the way that he led and actually took over in the pilot episode and what we now witness is the birth of something new because juliet is coming in fresh and she's desiring to establish herself as an actual partner with a somewhat equal role Right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so he seems to want to keep things moving as he's known them because that's the way he's comfortable. And the way he's most comfortable is if just everything is within his control. He's just that way. So they're going to have to find a way to work together in order to actually work well and get things done. And I feel like we're getting to watch how that will happen. It's like an unfolding of sorts, but maybe just a little messier. So maybe an uncrumpling. Yes. That's Uh, a great word. Uncrumpling. (laughs) Just because relationships are that. They're messy. And a good partnership in police work must be relational. Yeah. I think good partnerships in general must be relational. I guess maybe, I don't know how else you could get big tasks done without knowing your partner, teammate, coworker well enough that you can tackle a large task without knowing how everyone works. Right. But I love how they're kind of testing the waters with each other a little bit in this episode. They're beginning to try to learn what makes each other tick. Uh, not so subtly mentioned that you don't believe in inner office romance 
And you can gauge his response. Yeah. <laughs> uh, drop a one-liner sass and you can gauge another response. Yeah, and some of that just happens like organically over time. And it will for them too. But it's like they've still already got to go ahead and jump in and get stuff done. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be like an awkwardness between the now and then the ongoing in terms of them getting to know each other and each other's limits, their strengths, and uh, their weaknesses too. So it's like they've got to build a long-term thing, but only while they're already in it. They're already in it. Yeah, so like they are, and they can't just be like, oh, let's just be friends or get to know each other and we can start working together. Like there's work to be done already, and it's why they're together in the first place. And so they have to figure this out as they go. Yeah, and let's be honest, as hard as it is, Everyone should want to be partnered with somebody who's going to challenge them. Right. Challenge them to be better at their job. Challenge them to be better in their their personal character. Challenge them to learn and grow. And that type of relationship, first and foremost, is re- going to require trust and lots of it. Right. So how do you have trust already while developing trust for the first time? Exactly. I mean, that's what we're watching And since they're both like really strong characters with strong ideals, it's going to be interesting, but it is, as you say, going to challenge them and it's going to make the partnership something that pushes them both. And I think in good ways. Yeah. I'm excited to pay close attention to them unfolding. Uncrumpling. Uncrumpling. (laughs) uh, How their partnership is going to work. These two eventually become one of my favorite relationships on the show. Yeah. Not ever in a romantic way, but how deep they will allow their partnership to go is so fun to witness. And, hey, we're here for the relationships, aren't we? It's true. Not just the bromances and the romance of it all, but all of them. Yeah, it's true. And, honestly, there's no greater kind of platonic relationship that we see in television than these, like, kind of cop partnerships Mm -hmm. or soldier brotherhoods or... Uh, any service people because they have to depend on each other for their lives. And so it's going to be an interesting dynamic where they really have to build that trust as they go fast. Yeah. And it's it's a wonderful thing to watch. It really is. And how quick they're, they're ready to jump in and test those waters. They have to be, yeah. Yeah. So what are some very specific ways that we see Jules stepping up to assert herself in this new position, do you think? And I'm going to also ask about Lassie in terms of his showing himself and how he views his place in the partnership, if not in control all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, she mentions no inner office relationships, which yeah. which definitely puts Carlton on the spot in multiple ways. There's an insinuation that he was inappropriate in having a relationship with his former partner, but there's also an assertion that she will be treated as a equal partner. Yeah. Not a love interest, not a helper, or anything that might be read into a partnership blurring into some sort of romantic or other type of relationship. She challenges him several times on correct protocol. It seems they're both going to hold each other to very exacting standards because they both know all the rules. Right, all the rules, it seems. Yes. I mean, just that little exchange about the police codes. I mean, it was so telling because in addition to revealing like both of them as like, true law people you know they're both sticklers for justice but it, it it's also her showing that she has just as much right to be there and she can meet him toe to toe oh toe to toe so she's not shying away and she's making herself known to be present and yet she's still respecting him 
She's acknowledging his busts, even these like not mean looking robbers and saying it's a big deal. She's giving him that honor that's due. Yes. But she's letting him know that she has her place. Well, she's she she seems to really deeply understand that respect is going to go both ways. She's going to command it, but in commanding it, she's also going to give it. Yeah. And she's going to give it freely. It's not about proving herself or disproving somebody else. It really is about the result. Like they have a job to do and she wants it done well and he wants it done well. They're going to have to figure it out and navigate how they're going together. But ultimately she's going to give credit because she cares about justice being done. Yeah. And she's going to want the same credit when she accomplishes something because she cares about justice having been done. Yes. And just in case you're interested, I did do a little bit of research on these police codes for the aftercast. Ooh, this is going to be fun. Well, speaking of interesting little tidbits like police codes, I looked up some information about robberies because this, of course, episode is centered around originally a bank robbery. Yes. Right now, the crime and the, and the issue that Sean is solving isn't the robbery itself, but the aftermath of the robbery. Yes. Where's the money hidden? Is this guy being alive? Who was the mastermind? What's going to happen? But it started with a bank robbery. And I found some interesting things. Would you like to know about bank robberies? I would love to know more about bank robberies. Because you know I love a good heist. But I can tell you about current statistics of bank robberies in, okay. in the U.S. They are the highest, most caught crimes in the U.S. Like the the perpetrators are caught the most often? That's correct. So they have the highest arrest rate of any crime in the country. So it was nearly 60% of all bank robberies were caught. But in 2017, thanks to uh, updated and increased technologies, that number jumped significantly to 86%. So 86% of bank robbers are caught. Wow. You only have a 14% chance of getting away, people. It's not the most lucrative crime. In fact, most bank robbers only get a take up to around 2,000 max. Oh, that's not a very good... There might be a few times it's a big hit, but in general it's not because a lot of times it's just taking the note up to the register and whatever is in the cash drawer is what they get away with. Mm -hmm. So in some ways it might be an easier crime, but you don't get much of a take and you're very likely to be caught. And the sentence for being caught even if you didn't use a gun, is up to 20 years in prison. If it's armed, if there are any casualties, it increases dramatically. So it's a low payoff, high risk situation for the, the thief. Yes. Now, what is interesting... Well, I mean, robbing a bank probably should be discouraged just in general. I would think so. Yes. I or mean... Just, you know, general, general robbing. General robbing. Let's discourage... General robbing. Yes. It's it's not going to pay off. No. And here's the thing, though. It is one of the things where, according to the Sauros... The Sauros? According to the Sauros book of criminal justice statistics, uh, injuries occur in only 2% of bank robberies, and a death occurs in less than 1% of all U.S. bank robberies, oftentimes being the criminal themselves. Huh. Because have you noticed in almost all TV bank robberies, 
a death occurs? Well, 100% of homicides have a death. That is a very true fact. But bank robberies, not quite the same. And here's another astounding fact. Most bank robbers are actually not just caught. They're caught on the same day that the crime was committed. The same day? Yep. So it's just not many can make a living because even if they get away with it the first time, the likelihood of them getting away with it the second time... It's like non-existent. Right. It decreases with every attempt. And so being that they're not going to get much money, they're going to get a lot of prison time, there's a high likelihood that they're going to be caught. It's not a lucrative business. Yeah. Okay, listeners, take Lizzie's advice here. Don't rob a bank. I don't know if prison is the most comfortable environment to be listening to your podcast from. Ooh. Listeners, we're dreaming of you sitting on a beach listening to our podcast. We want the best for you, listeners. We exactly. really do. So if no you- bank robberies. If if you have any comments about this episode or bank robberies in general, or if you just want to share the comfortable environment from which you are listening to this podcast, please let us know. We want to hear your thoughts. So contact us at Lizzie at gmail.com. That's S-U-S-I-E-A-N-D-L-I-Z-Z-I-E at gmail.com. Uh, can we talk about how Sean is always making friends with the bad guys? Yeah, he's very amiable, I think. And... Like, well, okay, in previous episodes, we see him making, like in the, in the pilot, we see him making friends with uh, Katerina McCollum, who's not actually the bad guy, but he, she is the suspect. She does become a suspect. And by him. Yeah. So, like, he does make friends, but then he kind of crash and burns really hard on yeah, that Yeah, because he was the one who also, like, made, him, made her the suspect. <laughs> So it's like, but he has these instant attractions, I think, to people, even if it's not something romantic, but just like, he just is a friend. Like, he just kind of, I think, maybe views a lot of people as potential friends. Yeah. And uh, so like, and then the spelling bee, uh, I don't, I don't remember that he really became close with anybody there, but in the last episode, in episode three, of course, the person he's the most interested in is the actual criminal. It, yes. It's like, oh, you know, in the pilot episode, he's interested in the girl, and what a shame. He ends up thinking she's the criminal, and that kind of tanks the whole deal. Well, in this one, he's interested in the girl, and she actually is the criminal, <laughs> which tanks the whole and deal. And that kind of tanks the whole deal? Yeah. But he, he does seem to have a friendliness towards people and maybe almost like a disregard uh, to the potential criminal side of them. Yeah. If I could say. Well, I think I think this is part of why a show about like not lying while you're lying, about not lying, psych, <laughs> works, works so well. You know, Sean, it, it just seems like he trusts people. Now, don't get me wrong. I know he has, like, moments where he's running around accusing literally anything and everyone that's, like... I mean, he hasn't solved a crime unless he's accused, like, five people. Exactly. But we still can kind of see that he believes in people in general. Yeah. Did you see my giant air quotes around I in did. general? I did. Again, what is up with the podcast? Like, you cannot see how much we talk with our hands. <laughs> Which may, maybe... 
maybe our listeners are blessed because of that because maybe they would, it would be we're distracting. having psychic episodes every time we talk <laughs> since we use our hands so much that is probably very true um so but back to back to my point that uh that he believes in people in there's a general. part of, in general exactly thank you i heard your air quotes thank you uh there's i think i think a lot of people expect other people to behave similarly to them right so like if you're someone that does lie you generally expect other people to be lying if you're someone that kind of manipulates you expect other people to be a little bit manipulative if you're someone that's maybe really critical of other people, you expect other people are very critical of you. Well, and I think even on the positive side of that, if you're a very generous person, you're sometimes surprised when others aren't. Yes, very true. So even, and that's very true with, with positive attributes as well. But I think that we we see our own characteristics in other people yeah. so often, whether or not they're true. And the fact that he believes people makes me think that he's more trustworthy it makes it makes me as an audience member want to trust him more because he trusts other people yeah he's really likable in that way yeah Uh, because he's giving everybody the benefit of the doubt even if they're known criminals which we see later on yeah he's kind of you know where we have Jules and Lassiter, and Lassiter especially because he's such a man of the law, he judges everybody by the law. Yes. So if they have a criminal history, that's who they are. We don't see that change until, you know, much, much later in further seasons down when he happens to fall in love with a criminal. But even then, he still recognizes that. But taking that same point, um, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, um, is that Lassiter would very, very much expect to be judged by the letter of the law. Absolutely. That's why he holds himself in that way. Yeah. Whereas uh, Sean seems to be looking at people as people. Yes. And because he wants to be looked at as people, I think where he's had that relationship with his dad, there's always been these expectations. He just wants to be himself. And almost to a degree where he's pushing some of that immaturity a little too far forward. But I, and so he has almost this like invincible quality to him where it's like he thinks nothing can happen to him. Yes, which is invincibility and immaturity most of the time kind of go a little bit hand in hand. Yeah, a little bit. But I don't think it's like completely like naive immaturity. No. I think I agree. I do think he's very aware of like a lot of the dangerous situations he's in, but because he is so by nature amiable. He uses that, maybe that's like his superpower, his charm, right? Uh, where he uses that to deflect from da- potentially dangerous situations and to maybe try to diffuse them. But even in other situations where he is maybe, maybe he's got a really good innate sense of judgment that is just natural to him where he's not off put by criminals right away. And so he just uses his charm and continues on with without it even being a tool to like try to escape a dangerous situation but just to kind of further suss out the actual situation where he's actually looking for the truth yeah and I think you and I were talking at one point uh one time and you were saying how you know he walks into a room and he just notices all these details yeah he see he just I feel like he just sees everything when he walks in and so I think he's able to analyze and 
very quickly and maybe even subconsciously uh, kind of suss out the room yeah. uh, for the potential. But we definitely see in this episode, we see the beginnings of that like friendship with either criminals or past criminals or, or like suspects. potential suspects. Yes. And we see that, I think, the best, like we see it a little bit when he's first introduced to David Wilcroft, who is, surprise, alive. Dun, dun, dun. Right. Uh, we see it a little bit there where he walks into a situation where this guy who's faked his own death, who robbed a bank, and who at, they, at that point, uh, when they realize he's alive, he could be the major suspect in threatening Raylene. Yes. Because they're at that point still believing that she needs protecting. And yet... What is he doing talking with Gus on the side about? He's talking about the fact that Gus has a crush on this dude's wife. Right, which if, like, this guy is really potentially dangerous, the last like thing that, you want yeah. to be doing. If this guy is dangerous, is is Sean putting Gus in danger by talking about it in front of David? Right, but no, 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 it's okay because you're dead and so she's free. But also, they love his hair. Yes. And, you know, people with good hair can't be the criminal until a few episodes down the road. I really should work harder on my hair then. Well, but then again, they do point out split ends, dandruff. It, it's a lot to maintain. But, so we see a little bit of it with that. But I think the best scene, and it's my favorite scene of this whole episode, comes when they're oh. breaking in the hotel. Yes! Where they're guessing the num- the fingers on... Right, so, from, uh, yes? so they're, they're breaking into the hotel because the, the criminals that Lassie and Jules are staking out, which were the accomplices in the crime who have been released from prison, they're, they're checking them out to kind of think, because they think they would be the guilty party, right? Yes. And, well, uh, they're the only ones that they, that Lassiter and Jules are aware of still being a part of that crime. I right, because they let really David Wilcroft go. David Wilcroft, they think he's dead. Right, but Sean and Gus, when they met him, they didn't even turn they, him in. No, they, they acted like, like he hey. was not even. Ah, you're not even a threat, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that he has this like it's it's a funny thing that he has with these criminals, but we see it especially um, in that scene. I love that because the counting the fingers, you know, they're they're held at gunpoint. They walk in. Well, and the, yeah, and that's a whole nother level, and I I don't know like. I have, and this is a really random story, I have actually seen my mother held at gunpoint. Oh, my word. When I was probably about seven or eight. And and she stayed incredibly calm. I don't know that that's going to be the common response. Is first, like, Sean and Gus, like, like, everybody always stays so calm in TV shows. I mean, I could see staying calm in the moment, but having that anxiety running through you, you know? But... That's not what happens. The next thing we know, after he proves he's a psychic, they decide he's a good guy, and they. The next scene, we see they're they're they have a, they've all got a beer in front of them, sitting on the couch together. Yeah, having a good chit chat, laughing at things like they've been best buddies the whole time. I don't think that's a normal response. I think even if you can stay cool in that uh, traumatic situation, you're gonna have this after response where the adrenaline, you know, kind of subsides, and you're just gonna have that emotional response because people who hold guns at you usually are willing to use them yes and I think it's a good rule of thumb to believe they will well and that's you know that that's I think probably better than a good rule of thumb that's just you know using 
using brains. You don't even have to have a whole lot of brains to just assume that somebody's, somebody right. might be willing to use a weapon they have pointed at you. Right. But, uh, like, what did you think of that scene where he's just, like, sitting at chatting the breeze? Honestly, because I'm watching it as a TV show. Right. Like, you, you kind of take it in a little bit as a TV show where your level of expecting realism is a little bit off. Right. You know, and so I I really did. I really did take it in. Like, these guys, Sean kind of was able to read that they were not these criminal mastermind, bad guy, you know. Like, literally, he's turned and put his fingers in front of Gus's face. Yeah. To prove Sean's psychicness. Like, this is not a criminal mastermind. Yeah. And... And so it really, like for me, I really did feel like I was I was fully taken on, taken along for the ride. That these guys became friends. That these guys sat down right. and had fun and had a beer, because you can kind of see it from both sides. Like the bad guys are bad guy are they're not bad guys. I'm sorry, but the bad guys are the ex cons. The ex cons got in over their heads. They got pulled into a, a scheme that really was just beyond their scope of, of I think, even who they were. Like, I don't know that they would have ever planned to rob a bank on their own. And then that Sean came in and maybe actually got to see them for who they really are. Right. As two men who who got pulled into something that was a little bit over, over their heads. Well, you mentioned how people tend to see in others what they see in themselves or what they even maybe what they want to see in themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think with these guys, I think the fact that Sean actually listened to them and heard them out in their side of the story and actually gave it credibility, like, oh, okay, is that what happened? Like, that actually makes sense. Like, they felt heard. Yes. And all of a sudden, they didn't feel like they were just on that chopping block. And so it, like, diffused something. Now, Gus was standing over on the sidelines, (laughs) a little suspicious, I think, probably, when he was standing in the doorway watching them. But he was more comfortable as well because that immediate threat had passed. Yeah. But I think it's great because how does that scene end except with them saying, hey, dude, the cops are out there. Like, yeah, let's like get you. They're, they're helping Sean and Gus quote escape now, right? And uh, and yeah, it just shows the level of them starting to see each other as peers instead of um, like combatants. Yeah, it's like almost like kids on the playground. Oh no, the teachers are out there. Let's all sneak out this way, whether any of them are guilty of anything or not. Yeah, I thought that was a great scene, and actually, it's probably my favorite scene from the whole episode I think it's my favorite scene from this whole episode too even including like the scenes outside and Juliet saying they don't look so mean and and all of those all those little pieces about these two characters I think were just very very well done speaking of favorite things shall we finish out the episode with our favorite quotes from this show from this particular show. Um, Okay. You got a favorite? I do. Uh, I actually have two. Um, One is, I just, I just love the, the line when they're like, 
trying to get into that hotel room, which is the very beginning of that scene we just mm-hmm. talked about. And Gus is like, this is breaking and entering. And Sean is like, no, no, no. Only if we break something. And then and enter then something. enter something. <laughs> entering is just entering. <laughs> like, everything he does to counter somebody else is always so literal. Um, but it's tongue-in-cheek literal. Yes. And I love that. But And so that's usually the one that sticks out in my mind, except the one I find that I always want to quote, which is awkward because I am actually a woman. Um, and I think it's much funnier coming from Sean is when he sits in the chief's pregnancy chair. Uh-huh. And he's, te- and he's trying uh, to uh, uh, get Gus to try it. And he's like, my birthing canal has never felt so in line. Oh, that is also one of my favorite scenes from this episode. And that's my, my favorite line is he's, he says, I call it the magic springy bounce-up chair. <laughs> like, I, I love that whole scene where they're, they're using the chair and getting... It's such a great... It's, it's well done over one, like, piece of prop material. Yes. Well, and the whole, the whole concept, like, you don't realize where the scene is taking you, that Sean is setting Gus up... Right. Uh, ...to get reprimanded. <laughs> and, and, and anyway, I just... That one is so hilarious to me that, that Sean is, like, encouraging him to, like, oh, it's amazing and it's so wonderful and here's a smoothie and... Magic springy ma- and the magic springy bounce up chair. Yeah, I think it's funny that Gus is always able to call Sean out on him not being a psychic because he does it so openly and freely, but only when they're alone. Yes. So he he's always got his back when others are around him, but he's very quick to remind Sean that he's not a real psychic. You're not really. And psychic. he's like, and, and where Sean even when Gus is saying something, and Sean even responds, Gus, I'm not a mind reader. And he's like, no, that's just what you tell everybody. (laughs) (laughs) I just think those moments are so precious in that relationship between the two friends. Yes, I would, I would 100% agree. But my biggest question for you as we finish out is, so when we record our next episode, Uh uh-huh. Will you have provided our studio with magic springy bounce-up chairs? Uh, I, no. I'm terribly sorry to, to say that our, 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 our studio in all of its fabulous glory <laughs> will probably continue to be just boring chairs from the local furniture store. I would also accept magic bounce-up chairs or springy bounce-up chairs or magic springy chairs. I could get you an extra pillow to sit on. Would that help? All right, so that's the time we have today. I tried real hard. You did. This has been So Psychological. You've heard it both ways. I hear that. 